are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We are back with a fantastic episode on overamping, stimulant toxicity and overdose. This is a emerging trend, but this is probably under-recognized and something that we are seeing more and more, even in the outpatient setting. I think our emergency doctors out there are probably rolling their eyes going, they've been seeing this for years. But this is something Paul and I, we were talking about, I think, a few months ago, and really sometimes baffled about how, how do you treat it? When are you recognizing it? What are some of the symptoms? And so that's what we're going to talk about is what is this? We'll talk about the CDC definition, some of the epidemiology around stimulant use, and what are some of the treatments and harm reduction strategies that we can employ when you encounter this? So Paula, let's start us off. Kind of tell us about what is is overamping, and then we'll talk about how do you recognize this? Sure. Okay. So overamping is a term that's used, commonly used in the harm reduction world or the uh, using world. And according to the CDC, a definition of stimulant overdose or stimulant toxicity is a situation that occurs when someone is experiencing the effects of a stimulant so severe that their health or safety may be at risk. So that's a direct quote from the CDC. And they go on to say that due due to the variable nature of stimulant overdoses, there are some potentially life-threatening emergencies resulting from the use of stimulants. And this can be called stimulant toxicity overramping. Also, these experiences that are beyond the desired kind of high or intoxication of a stimulant can be seen as overramping. It's kind of like you overshoot the desired effect. And there's some... I mean, we could literally just call it stimulant overdose because you're over, you've overshot what you wanted to do. However, I think overdose has been associated with opioids. So we don't want to confuse the uh, pathophysiology of stimulant overdose with opioid overdose. However, we do want to stress that overamping and stimulant toxicity and overdose are really serious and actually responsible for a lot of deaths on its own, on their own, as well as combined with other drugs. So that stimulant, we're going to call it overamping or stimulant toxicity, but it really could be stimulant overdose as well. Yes, thanks, Paula. I think that's a great way just to define that and understanding some of the epidemiology. So first, just understanding the seriousness and what we're seeing with this trend one, stimulant-involved overdose deaths have risen significantly. And so, and that goes along with just the rise in use. So deaths from 2013 to 2019 with psychostimulants involved, that death rate has increased from 317% from 2013 to 2019. And this just comes from cdc.gov. But that is a significant increase in just the amount of overdose deaths. Then rates of overdose deaths from psychostimulants have been increasing since 2010. And from cdc.gov, from 2013 to 2019, psychostimulant-involved death rate increased by 317%. 
That goes along with just this increased use of stimulants. When we see the past use of stimulants in from 2020, we have over 2.5 million Americans 12 years and older have reported methamphetamine use. And from 2015 to 2018, it was estimated 1.6 million. So we see how that average use is just increasing steadily from year to year. 53% of those that used meet the diagnostic criteria for methamphetamine use disorder. And you see an interesting, some of the characteristics of those using stimulants. So adults with limited income, those on Medicaid, people who are uninsured with lower educational status, males, middle-aged adults, people living in rural areas, are increased methamphetamine use. So this is something that we see definitely a little bit sometimes different, different demographic and different regional. So the state-specific findings are very interesting. And I know, Paula, you have seen like moving from very urban area to a rural area, just florid use of methamphetamine, correct? Absolutely. And it's and methamphetamine seen typically more on the West Coast and the you know, Midwest of the United States and cocaine use and crack use or free-based cocaine seen more on the East Coast and the Northeast. Yeah. However, that seems to be changing as, you know, methamphetamine seems to be creeping somewhat eastward and cocaine seems to pop up, especially in bigger cities. Although interestingly, we have a bit of cocaine use where I live as well. And we can't forget too that psychostimulants include not only illicit psychostimulants like cocaine and methamphetamine, but also prescription stimulants, yes. which also can carry all of the same risks that illicit stimulants do. Absolutely. But what do you see? So what are some of the factors that when we we describe overempting, and these are what we typically, there were some studies, and this came from the National Harm Reduction Journal that did some street studies, Paula, and you can tell us a little bit about that study, but really they just went out and did these qualitative like interviews, and these are reported symptoms of and effects that people were describing. And that's where these this term overamping came from. And then that gave us what sets people up in the first place for overamping, and then some of the symptoms that they would report. And so the symptoms, this is actually, the National Harm Reduction Coalition is a great resource when you are doing research on overamping, or when you want to educate your patients or clients about overamping, or if you yourself want to know about it. And what we know about overamping is it can look like a lot of different things, ranging from nausea and vomiting, uh, chest pain or tightening in the chest, which can actually be, you know, acute cardiac syndrome or acute myocardial infarction, hyperthermia and profuse diaphoresis or lots of sweating, rapid heart rate, tachycardia, irregular breathing or shortness of breath, which again can be part of acute coronary syndrome. Um, it can be manifested by seizures, which can be very dangerous, stroke. Um, people can feel, have incredibly severe headaches, and then we can find very high blood pressure, 
They can grind their teeth. They can have insomnia and go days without sleeping. They can have tremor. And those are kind of just some of the physiological findings and symptoms. But then, of course, there are the psychological symptoms of overramping as well, which could be extreme anxiety, panic, paranoia, hallucinations, agitation, aggressiveness, restlessness, hypervigilance, which kind of like paranoia, really, feeling like your environment is unsafe and enhanced sensory awareness. Um, so all of those things can be, you know, experienced, not all of them at once, but any of them. And of course, you want to look for and be aware of the lethal complications of overdosing with the stimulant. And that would be the complications of a seizure, like we just said, a stroke, which is typically a bleed in the brain when it comes to uh, stimulant use, acute coronary syndrome or a heart attack. And then stimulants are also famous for causing uh, cardiac arrhythmias or unusual rhythms in the heart. And so we've got to watch for all of those. And I think those were described in the the study you rec- you referenced, Darlene, as well. Well, and some of the risk factors, and these are, again, from some of those street studies that these are the, what patients reported. So some of the things that they said may lead to overamping, but it talked about being up for too long or sleep deprivation, just being worn down from not eating or drinking, particularly dehydration from in a weird or uncomfortable environment. And so being kind of disoriented, like being in a high stress or unsafe environment. And then they described it as just doing that one too many hit kind of syndrome, just a little extra and mixing. So that was a common phenomenon, mixed it with other drugs and that put them like in a bad place. So that was just some of the from their qualitative like surveys of finding where people would put this report of what maybe had put um, increased risk. And so from cdc.gov on stimulant overdose, specifically cocaine is much more likely to cause seizures, heart attacks, and strokes. And a recent study showed heart damage in cocaine users. 83% had heart damage. 73% had scarring of their heart or what we'd call fibrosis from silent heart attacks. So like what Paula just described in some of those symptoms, a lot of that can be acute coronary syndrome occurring and not being diagnosed. And I remember this, Paula, my very first night as a medical student working in the emergency department, we had a a patient on cocaine come in with an MI. And classic, I mean, I don't think any of us went through medical school not witnessing this. And so that's how, unfortunately, how common this is. And one thing I didn't mention this is only one out of three patients with psychostimulant misuse disorder receive any treatment for their dis- for their actual like, substance use disorder, which is, again, why this is such a common but scary problem. Right. No, you're dead right. The other thing that we didn't talk about, too, that is part of the sequela of methamphetamine or or any stimulant use in general, but especially overamping or um, overdosing, is the risk of uh, renal disease. So we see acute yeah. renal injury. That's actually very common. You and I have seen that. And again, that yes. can come from dehydration, going for days without 
drinking water. Uh, the other thing that we also see is increased risk of suicide and injury. And they referenced that in the article, the harm reduction journal article that's um, harding it all. And we do see people who get into trouble with, you know, motor vehicle accidents, injuries, violence, because they're in this altered sensorium. So things really can happen that are deleterious with, with um, stimulants on board. One thing that we've been seeing that's more chronic, although it can present as an acute problem, that's a direct risk of chronic methamphetamine use specifically. It sounds like it is from cocaine use too, because you just described this. This is not so much a result of overamping, but we need to talk about it because it's so common, and that is cardiomyopathy. Yes. So we are seeing, and they have some statistics in this paper, but we're seeing a huge increase in the rate of heart failure from people who have chronically used methamphetamine because they have um, cardiomyopathy and resultant heart failure. And it can be devastating heart failure, like they come in with an ejection fraction of 5%. So we should be evaluating our patients who use stimulants routinely for their cardiac function and make sure we're not missing um, developing cardiomyopathy and uh, heart failure. What do we do to manage these? So SAMHSA has a great resource, Tip 33, which is the Treatment Improvement Protocols, it's Treatment for Stimulant Use Disorders. This is a fantastic resource, and it goes through step-by-step step each of these common things that you encounter. And Paula, like this was just a couple of weeks ago, I remember you texting me saying, I've got a patient in my office. They're hypertensive, they're hyperthermic, and they're and they're tachycardic. And and exactly this, I think they're overamped. What do you do? So for starters, what do we do with hyperthermia? You want to rapidly cool the patient, use what cooling devices you have, external cooling agents like water misting, convection cooling fans, ice packs, aggressive sedation if you need to. If this sometimes they're just so amped up and moving about. I mean, that's part of the problem. Volume replacement. Don't forget about that. IVs if you need to. So that's important to get, but to manage the hypothermia. The hypertension, benzodiazepines can be helpful to alleviate cardiovascular symptoms. In an outpatient setting, this can be a little bit trickier, but to manage uncontrolled hypertension using phentalamine, or non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, that's your verapamil or your diltiazam, but that will reduce typically the hypertension, not always the tachycardia. The alpha blocker phentalamine usually, again, does the same thing of managing the hypertension, not the tachycardia. Labetalol has a mixed, if you remember, beta and alpha blocker. That has some demonstrated safety and effectiveness in cocaine-induced hypertension and tachycardia. And there was a more recent study by Richards and Lee from 2020 that ended, and it was approved by the American Heart Association for patients with unstable and non-ST elevation MI who've used cocaine. So generally, beta blockers are discouraged in the treatment of stimulant-induced hypertension, and particularly those for cocaine, except you can consider labetalol in those, cons in those um, circumstances. So that's right. just something to consider. To remember. And also, you know? just remember, like, this is, not this is not treated in an office setting. I mean, if someone is no. mildly 
overamped and tachycardic or hypertensive, hypertensive in your office and you evaluate them, you've got to make this medical decision of are they do they need to go to the emergency department or not? Because this can be a life-threatening condition. So Absolutely. Giving mm-hmm, giving IV fluids and managing someone with benzodiazepines. I mean, you have to have them in a setting where you can aggressively assess Monitor, them and address yeah. them. Exactly. Yeah. If you're to the point where I'm thinking benzodiazepines, this is not something I'm typically always I'm going to be managing in the outpatient setting. Treatment, obviously, complaints of chest pain always warrants the evaluation for a possible myocardial ischemia. You, you would treat this like you would any other cardiac workup. So, and like, that's just what Paula said. This is not something that you're going to be managing in an outpatient setting. You would do your typical workup. What about for seizures? What would yeah. you do if someone seizures? Seizure? Yes, yeah, seizures, you would administer the Razepam first is typically considered first line. You can, you can sometimes administer midazolam, that's, but that's typically considered second line. But barbiturates, typically phenobarbital, are recommended if somebody does not respond to benzodiazepines. So like if they're in status or something yep. like that, right? Or again, yeah, status or sometimes like, again, if you have co-use, other mm-hmm. substances. And you, you, this is just back to your ABC. So if you have somebody easing, you have cardiac, you're going to go back to your normal. You're going to be... Rep- you know, providing all of your managing your airway, you're going to be managing all of those other things. But those are things like, again, just some interesting things to keep in mind as you're trying to stabilize some of these patients and then consider how serious is this and do they need more? Do they need to go from an outpatient to a more acute care setting? Let's talk about some of the harm reduction strategies for overamping. Okay, so this is for people who, you know, obviously, if people are using stimulants, we want to make sure that they have every resource available to them to stop or reduce their use if possible. As we know, there are no FDA approved medications for stimulant use disorder. However, we do have evidence based treatments available for people, including contingency management, CBT, the matrix model, family based therapies, et cetera. So, We always want to make sure that people have access to treatment and have a referral to treatment if that's what they want. So like Darlene mentioned, people, only about a third of people who have methamphetamine use disorder actually are able to access treatment. However, for people who are continuing to use stimulants, we do want to be able to have a comfortable, open conversation with them about safety while they continue to use to mitigate the risks of their use. So this is basic harm reduction principles. It's a non-judgmental approach to meeting people where they are and encouraging them to uh, make goals. However, let's just talk about some of these harm reduction things specifically for overshooting with a stimulant. So these are not necessarily in any order, okay, because they're all equally important. But one of the things we want to talk about is not encouraging people not to use alone. There's lots of reasons why this is particularly important, especially in the age of opioids. But for stimulants as well, people who end up over-amping or overdosing with a stimulant and they're alone, they don't have someone, obviously, who can check on them if they have a seizure, Mm -hmm. have a cardiac event, or if they become 
acutely psychotic and cannot account for their behavior. Now, if there's no uh, resource for reliable peers to be with them and not be using as well, there are apps and programs available for people to have a safe person, trained professional on the other end of an app or a phone when someone is using. So the best program that I know of um, and is referenced in the data is a na nationwide program called Never Use Alone, and you can access it by neveruseallone.com. They have an app as well. They're very careful about confidentiality, so they de-identify people. However, people who are using drugs can call up this number, get online, get into the app, and actually talk to a real life person, talk to them about where they're using, what they're using. And if they become unresponsive and don't respond within a certain time frame on the app or on the phone, then the app responds by calling emergency services to the location that they're using. So number one, don't use alone. Number two, encourage your um, clients and your folks to test dose or use smaller amounts slower. So testing a dose, again, has multiple benefits. One, because you may not be sure what's in the drug, and we're going to talk in a minute about drug checking, but you want to make sure that the, the potency of what you're using is actually the potency that you expect. And so by using slower or testing the dose, it actually may mitigate some of the risk of overshooting. Route of use could be important for some people as well. Snorting, smoking, or injecting a drug is going to create a much more rapid response to any drug. Uh, so methamphetamine is one of the drugs that is used in multiple routes, right? People, they eat it, yep. they swallow it, they put it in liquid, they inject it, they snort it, they smoke it. So even though this seems counterintuitive for medical professionals to talk about this, our street um, amazing street uh, workers and harm reduction people are very good at talking to people about changing their route of use. So going from a more risky route to a less risky route. So avoiding injection use, switching from smoking to oral ingestion, for example, uh, that may mitigate some of the rapid onset of a very potent dose. Let's talk about drug checking. We are fully immersed in an age of contaminated drugs. And we're seeing this in the data. So Darlene talked about methamphetamine overdose rates at the beginning of the podcast. We had an amazing episode last season on methamphetamol, methamphetamol by Dr. Javier Ballester and how methamphetamine and fentanyl are rising together in the fourth wave of the opioid epidemic. It's no longer just opioids now, it's opioids with stimulants. So whether or not people are intentionally using stimulants with opioids or unintentionally Many, many stimulants now are contaminated with fentanyl. So you need to check drugs in order to test that they really are what you think they are and that they're not contaminated. And the only real way to do this is to use drug testing strips. So access fentanyl test strips from syringe exchange programs or other harm reduction programs. These are CDC regulated and endorsed. They have data behind them. The other drug you want to encourage your clients and patients to check for is xylazine. Xylazine has been making an appearance in mostly synthetic opioids, but also has definitely been detected in methamphetamine and cocaine. 
And, you know, we did a whole episode on xylazine last season that you can listen to, but this is an animal tranquilizer sedative that is causing really terrible skin wounds and prolonged overdose kind of symptoms, sedation that is not responsive to naloxone. So drug checking and test dosing, we talked about those two. The other thing is encourage your patients to try and do some self-care. So Darlene talked about lack of sleep being a risk factor for overramping. I mean, we're all like this, right? Think about residency. <laughs> when we've gone, we went without sleep. Some overramping we, with caffeine. No kidding. We saw that. We saw Abs- that for sure. Absolutely. Or you just don't sleep and you're much more irritable. You're much yep. more likely to um, snap at people. You talk about lack of sleep and ultra running. People start hallucinating. <laughs> but that's a whole nother topic. So encourage people to try and get sleep if they can to get as much nutrition as they can, especially since their appetite is is quelled, you know, when they use stimulants and also to drink fluids. So dehydration is a huge risk factor, especially for some of the, you know, cardiac arrhythmias, acute MI, renal injury, et cetera. So have access to fluids and to drink. Another thing is encourage them to take care of any medical and psychiatric issues because people who have co-occurring underlying hypertension, and then you amp up and dose with a stimulant, you're just adding on basically gasoline to a fire. So address underlying medical issues if possible, make sure that they have access to medical care. And then the same thing with psychiatric issues. If you have an underlying untreated mood disorder or thought disorder, and then you're using stimulants, you may be way more at risk for overamping. This all being said, realizing that people who use stimulants are that they're the group of folks that access treatment the least, I think, which is so unfortunate, right? But so we want to really reach out and make sure that we're addressing the needs of these folks. And then lastly, just want to talk about making sure we help people reduce exposure to bloodborne disease. So giving them access to clean and sterile use supplies, whether those are syringes and needles, alcohol swabs, sterile water, cookers, tourniquets, and then also smoking supplies, smoking supplies and snorting supplies. Harm reduction is key here and um, we, we, we can't forget it. We need to put it in the forefront while we're encouraging to get people to access treatment. Absolutely. Keep offering them resources. Like I said, we meet them where we are. Thank you so much, Paula, and have a great night. Thank you. Good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.